Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Hear ye, hear ye. It's time to gather in the town square and listen to the Airline Village Idiots. I'm Chris Chimes. And I'm the certified idiot, Ben Baldanza. Thanks for the download. Ben, it was a busy week and lots of things we could discuss, but we can't get to it all. Let's start with a favorite topic of yours the return of business travel. I was at the U.S. Travel Association's Global Mobility Conference in Washington, D.C. last week, and the American Airlines CEO, Robert Eisen, gave a very bullish outlook on business travel. But coincidentally, the Global Business Travel Association has released their fall travel outlook. And as GBTA looks to the $1.4 trillion business travel spend from 2019, they are predicting we won't see a full recovery until 2026. And that's on a global basis. So what do you think? Well, I think everyone is still being very optimistic. Of course, at some point, the world is going to sell more business travel in a year than they did in 2019, just because of volume and the world grows and more people are going to travel. But when you look at a couple things, Chris, the stability and comfort with video platforms like Zoom, Teams, and others. When you think about corporations realizing they can save a lot of money on travel, when you think that individuals, certain individuals, their own personal risk profile will suggest they don't want to travel quite as much. Some, I'm sure, want to get back to as much as they were, but not everyone. And maybe the most important thing is that airline travel has been identified by a number of businesses as one relatively easy thing they can do toward their ESG targets that investors are increasingly pushing companies to follow. So Bain went out and said, we're going to travel 35% less because what they do for work doesn't produce global emissions, right? They do analysis and they write reports and they advise, but they say we can travel a lot less and that's the way we can do it. So when you think of all those things together, it's just hard to imagine that the world's going to get back to 2019 just based on the fact that people are comfortable traveling again. Again, maybe by 2026, the world is big enough to meet that target again. But I honestly think it's going to be structured a little different. And I think the airlines and GBTA, who think it's just a matter of time until it all comes back, are missing the opportunity to make the changes they might need to make to their airline, their route structure, their seating configuration, their loyalty program, assuming that there is a structural change in business travel. Yeah, I have the same reaction, Ben. I, I still feel like people are trying to will it back. I mean, just by their sheer desire to get it back, they're going to get it back versus the reality of what's going on. And like you said, you know, I've got ESG and other factors that are coming into play, not just a potential recession and a spending slowdown. So that's going to result in a pullback of business travel as well, but just other factors at play. So I, I don't think this is something where you can just keep rubbing the magic lamp and getting your wish that it's going to come back. I think more people are traveling for business, but it's not as frequent We've talked about this before, kind of longer trips versus the road warrior kinds of things. 
and it's going to take a while. And ultimately, this is an opportunity, like you said, to rethink how you serve the business traveler and markets and the like, and you overlay pilot shortages and pullbacks from small communities. You know, all these things come into play. You're right, Chris. And in some ways, the airlines are talking two stories, too, because on the one hand, they keep this narrative that business travel is coming back and it moves from 74 percent of 2019 volume to 75 percent. And they said, look, it's still on an upswing. Right. And yet they also talk about blended travel or leisure travel becoming more important and vasuraja and american airlines and you know guest of the show has said that that could represent up to 50% of all their travel so on the one hand is it really business travel coming back or is it this blended travel so it's not like even within the airlines the Americans, Deltas, and Uniteds, at least, that there's a consistent story coming back about what they really think has happened or is happening with business travel. Yep. Well, and then FlightAware published a report about airport delays and cancellations for the just-completed busy summer travel season. Chicago Midway was the worst U.S. airport for delays, and that obviously points you right at Southwest, right? Clocking 38% of all flights delayed. Newark was the worst U.S. airport for cancellations, with almost 7% of all flights canceled, followed closely by New York's LaGuardia. On the international side, Toronto Pearson was the worst for delays, with a shocking 52% of all their flights delayed. And China had seven of the top 10 worldwide airports for flight cancellations. Newark and LaGuardia cracked the top 10 as numbers 9 and 10. Any other thoughts on all this, Chris? Well, you've called out Southwest and Midway on the delays, but as I looked at the top 10 U.S. airports for delays, Midway... Bwe, Orlando, Las Vegas, Dallas Love Field, Denver, that really screams Southwest. So six of their major airports for operations were on that top 10 list. So they must have really been hurting this summer. Um, you know, Canada, we've always kind of looked to Canada and their privatized air traffic control system as a model. They had, you know, three of the top 10 lousy airports globally. Uh, as far as delays. So it, it was an interesting list. Clearly, there is a lot of work to be done both in the U.S. with regard to ATC, but there was really kind of no rhyme or reason. There were hubs on this list, and then there were just major destination airports as well. But the bottom line is that the system was in a world of hurt, and it wasn't just U.S. airports, but on a global basis as well. Well, you know, in last week's show, we congratulated Minneapolis, Tampa, and Indianapolis for winning the J.D. Power Award for Best Airport. I'm glad to see that their names didn't show up on one of these worst ones. It would have put us in an uncomfortable position to say, well, are they really the best airport when they had all these delays? Well, careful. Indianapolis snuck in there as number 10 on the flights canceled at 3%. But for the most part, they they left they were left unscathed with regard to the J.D. Power list. But I just can't imagine what's going on in Canada with these delays and cancellations. You know, that it is a real interesting thing. And it's hard to imagine that it was weather in the summertime there. Right. You could imagine winter, they could deal with some more up there, maybe. But they do have big airports. And like you said, in the most cases, they're privatized. But it's real interesting. We should see what else we can learn from that and see what these big Canadian airports are going to do to address it, other than just hope it doesn't happen again. 
Well, Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. And we appreciate the support of Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, which is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Finally, Ben, on the news front, back to the scene of the crime, and I'm talking about the pilot shortage as the topic. The FAA has turned down the request by Republic Airways to reduce the flight hours from 1,500 to 750 as a requirement for Part 121 pilots. Are you surprised by this? I'm not surprised that the FAA turned down Republic's request, but I am disappointed still that the FAA hasn't decided to look at sort of a wholesale look at whether this makes sense. couple things to think about, Chris. This law was passed just over 10 years ago now. And the rest of the world, which often looks to the U.S. around safety-related regulations, no one else in the world has matched this. And when nobody does over 10 years, you have to wonder whether people really think it's safer to hire at 1,500 hours versus something lower. Other parts of the world are 230 hours or 250 like the U.S. used to be. Further, Chris, there are international flights that land every day in the U.S. with first officers who were hired with 250 hours. And at least theoretically, they could land in the U.S. with something close to that if it's their very first flight flying with a senior captain. And the U.S. doesn't say you can't land your plane here because that's unsafe. So, again, there's this uncomfort as to whether or not this is really a safety issue, more of a political issue. But I think Republic's request which I'm sure was cheered on by Mesa, SkyWest, and other regionals, just shows how difficult it's been to be able to hire pilots when it takes so much longer to get the requisite hours to get your ATP. So I don't blame Republic for trying this. I'm disappointed to say I'm not surprised the FAA didn't react to this But it does suggest to me that there's some momentum here, and maybe at some point the FAA will come back and say, as we've looked at all the results from this over 10 years, what's happened to the pilot pipeline, how much more expensive it has become for individuals who want to choose a pilot career, and What really is more safe, a pilot who spent 1,500 hours towing banners or one who spent fewer hours than that in small planes, but the rest of their time apprenticed to a very senior captain flying in the national airspace system? So I think this is a story that isn't over, but I have to say I'm not surprised about this chapter of it. I've got to tell you, I'm really surprised you haven't seen a coalition of rural communities, rural elected officials, and by rural, I'm not saying just farming areas or anything else, but small towns and medium-sized towns that are being impacted by the pullback in the regional industry. I'm really surprised you're not seeing a coalition develop making stronger requests and or demands of the DOT and FAA to rethink this rule. 
um, because it's it's ripe for that kind of campaign. I'll just leave it at that. You're right, Chris. And there already are some cracks in the armor in the sense that you can get an ATP with fewer than 1,500 hours if you have certain kinds of backgrounds. So the FAA said if you come from the military flight school program, you don't need as many as 1,500 hours. There's no case that I know of where you could get hired at 250, which was the answer before this ruling. But certainly with 750 or something less than 1,500, there are some pathways to be able to do that now. So a recognition in the law that there are certain ways the FAA sees it is safe to come into the, the industry that way does, along with the kind of coalition you're talking about, Chris, sort of suggest that maybe in the future there's going to be some modification of this rule. I absolutely believe that the FAA could lower these hours, not affect safety, the question is they'd have to do it in a way that keeps all the political factions that put this at a somewhat arbitrary 1,500 hours initially. Coming up, a great conversation with Kevin Cox, the CEO of Ferrovial Vertiports, which is poised to tap into the EV toll aircraft market that's creating a lot of buzz and no pun intended there. And I wonder if Aerodata is getting some skin in the game on that front. If you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operations. And soon, maybe your EV toll operation. (laughs) There we go. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Our guest this week is a fellow Dallas site of sorts. Uh, Kevin Cox is the CEO of Ferrovial Vertiports, that business uh, within the Spanish-based Ferrovial Corporation. And he is uh, launching their their global plan to build vertiports to support eVTOL aircraft. So we expect an interesting conversation today. Uh, Kevin, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Uh, l- let's start by uh, giving our listeners a little more background uh, of your career and what you've been doing in aviation before you got to this role. Uh, absolutely. So I have uh, been in the aviation industry for just over 35 years. Started my career uh, as legal counsel and uh, jumped into representing DFW Airport, Dallas Fort Worth International Airport. Ultimately, was their COO for many years. I jumped from there to uh, work for American Airlines, the world's uh, largest carrier, first as an officer overseeing global governmental affairs and then real estate. And after that, went to work for a VC firm that owned a variety of companies, one of which we ended up selling to Signature Aviation, uh, and I helped with the integration of that company and, and working in the Signature Group, um, which is the largest FBO um, network uh, in the world. Um, and from there, I got this fabulous opportunity to jump into a brand new piece of the aviation business that will soon take flight, and it's called uh, Vertiports and Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing. And I have the privilege, as you've already mentioned, of serving as the CEO of Ferrovial Vertiports, which is a subsidiary of a much larger company publicly traded on the Spanish Stock Exchange. And they're one of the largest global infrastructure companies, um, uh, quite honestly, in the world. Well, Kevin, it's great to have you on the show. And why don't we start out by asking you to describe the EV toll industry as you see it today, including sort of expected timing of things. Happy to do so, Ben. Like I said, I've been in the aviation industry over 35 years, and like you, have seen many things uh, change and evolve. But over the last five years, and even over the last two or three years, the innovation that's going into uh, 
this whole field is phenomenal. There are literally hundreds of companies ranging from small to large household names that are looking to build electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And what you can imagine is an aircraft literally lifting off straight up, almost like a helicopter. Uh, it uh, is extremely quiet. It's run on batteries and it's sustainable as such with no emissions. Uh, and then also lands vertically and it is extremely quiet. So this industry has been for the last four or five years trying to find its footing. Uh, many companies has, have uh, raised billions of dollars and are in the process of getting certification around the globe for their aircraft. And this industry, you know, we fully believe will transform how people move to and through cities, as well as uh, suburban uh, destinations. And, and uh, we have the privilege of, of focusing on the infrastructure piece, uh, not the actual flying of the aircraft, um, but, or the certification of the aircraft, but building these small airports that are nominally called uh, vertiports um, that will be scattered in networks around, uh, we believe, the globe. Um, and in terms of your second part of your question, timing, from all indications, including uh, conversations we've had with the FAA, barring unforeseen circumstances, a couple of these companies will likely get certification at the end of 2024, early 2025. And several of them are also seeking certification uh, in EASA in Europe, as well as with the CAA in the United Kingdom. So it's really an exciting time and something that, you know, I have not seen in, like I said, 30 plus years, the, the amount of innovation and the effort and the financing that's going into this, this uh, nascent industry. So, Kevin, as you pointed out, there are a lot of players in this space right now. Why is Ferrovio in particular in a great position to uh, tap into this emerging market? Well, I think there are two or three reasons, uh, Chris. One is, you know, this is a company that's been around 70 years. We have global construction management, investing and operating experience. Uh, we have built some of the most iconic transportation structures in the world. We just got uh, invested over a billion dollars as an example uh, and selected to build a new Terminal 1 at JFK. Uh, we're the largest shareholder um, at London Heathrow. And we have uh, you know several other airports, including airports in Dalaman, uh, Southampton, Aberdeen, and Glasgow, uh, all of which we believe kind of demonstrates our ability to not only invest, build, uh, but operate them. So it's just, I think it's our background. I think it's our depth. I think it's our experience. Uh, and quite honestly, uh, you know, Ferrovial is um, uh, the other piece of the business. They are very much visionary. And, and I feel privileged to be working for them because four or five years ago, very smart people in the innovation group at Ferrovial began looking at where we could take things that we do well, build, operate, and invest in transportation infrastructure. And they saw on the horizon the opportunity to build infrastructure for electric vertical to takeoff and landing aircraft. And as such, they built what we believe is kind of the secret sauce that, that also provides us beyond our experience, that additional leg up. And that is we have a very sophisticated demand model. And that demand model using big data or telephone data allows us to see on any two points on a map, who's going from point A to point B, how many people are going, why they're going, their purpose of trip, their customer profile. And then we have a predictive model um, based upon a, a variety of different uh, revenue predictions of where we think we can bring people out of a car, out of a train, um, out of a plane even, um, and taxi, whatever the mode of transportation, and save them time. And in doing so, stick them in an EVITAL uh, as part of, you know, this burgeoning new industry that is about to take off. So, you know, a, a long-winded answer to a very short question. We believe we've got the experience and the depth and, and quite honestly, the sophistication with the, the stuff that we can bring to the market that will help people make sure that we site these locations in the, in the proper way. So we have the greatest opportunity to assist the customers in, in building a, a new business. 
It all sounds exciting. Now, when we say airport, we all get a visual in our mind of what that means. Put that visual in our mind for a vertiport. What exactly is it, and why is this new infrastructure necessary to support the EV toll business? An excellent question, Ben. And, you know, I came from uh, DFW Airport where, you know, it's got uh, five terminals, 25,000 acres, uh, seven runways. It's just a massive piece of infrastructure. You've got to imagine shrinking that down folds upon folds upon folds. We can build a vertiport, you know, on an acre up to two or three would be the largest vertiport. It's really putting, quite honestly, aviation on its head. I mean, in the past, whenever cities or counties or states built airports, they tried to move them as far away from the populace as possible to avoid issues such as noise and overflights and, and all of the challenges that go with that larger infrastructure. For this new industry to be successful, it's just the opposite. We are building very small vertiports that, like I said, are capable of, of handling aircraft that take off vertically, um, that are electrified, and really it is a whole different way uh, of operating. It's, it shouldn't really be seen so much as an airport as it is should look, feel, and taste like you're jumping on a train or you're going to catch a taxi. There shouldn't be a lot of dwell time. You're not waiting on the next aircraft to take off from a, a runway. This really is designed all about convenience. And to do that, uh, you need to make sure that you're building your vertiport where the people want to be uh, to either work, you know, eat or play. And, and to do that, you got to know the first and last mile uh, of where they ultimately want to start from and end from. And that's kind of where, you know, citing it is so important, but putting it where people want to be at the end of the day is critical, uh, we believe, if this industry is going to be successful. So then where are you building vertiports right now where you think people want to be? And then I have a follow-up question after you answer that. We're focused primarily in the United States and Europe, geographically speaking. And initially, we will be developing and have already got one lease and we're working on others by the end of the year in Florida. But, uh, you know, we have ambitions in the Northeast of the United States, we have ambitions in Texas, California, portions of the mid the mid continent of the United States. We also are looking in the United Kingdom. We made some announcements there. But to be clear, our business model is not just about going and dropping a bunch of vertiports willy nilly uh, in geographic locations. We're all about uh, doing this with partners, and and so we don't build one vertiport or any vertiports on spec. We have dozens upon dozens of, uh, from airlines to vertiport, OEMs to potential operators that we have uh, ongoing discussions with and NDAs with. And when they show an interest in a particular geographic area, we go do our homework to make sure it's going to work for us. And then we work with them, you know, literally going uh, from a 30,000 viewpoint down to a per block viewpoint of where we think the greatest opportunity to build that network is. But it will start in Florida, but that that's not where it's going to end. There are going to be plenty of other places where we'll be building networks across both Europe and the United States. Okay, so I'm not going to ask you to disclose confidential information, but you said you're starting in Florida. So where? <laughs> well, that's one of the, the, the neat things about being the infrastructure provider. And I'll, I'll answer your where question with the fact that we're building agnostic vertiports, meaning that there are multiple operators out there uh, that are seeking to get their aircraft certified. Uh, there are multiple airlines out there seeking to buy these aircraft. Um, and each of them have, you know, kind of different business models. The airlines, uh, at least at this point, generally want to kind of feed their, their hub. You have uh, other carriers like Lilium that wants to connect cities in and amongst Florida that we've announced. And then you have other shorter haul companies like Volocopter and uh, Joby and Archer and others that, uh, that want to fly short hops, kind of intracity or intramunicipality uh, that are less than 20, 25 miles. So in answer to your question, um, it's primarily we're going to start uh, in southern Florida, uh, connecting up cities as well as being able to connect up uh, some major airports, we hope, as well as 
as inner city or intra-city, I should say, uh, service. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, being and building agnostic vertiports, you know, provides its challenges, but also provides that kind of diversification of opportunity where we can work with lots of different folks. More with Kevin in just a moment. Airlines Confidential is brought to you with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel burn and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. How daunting are the safety and regulatory framework and approvals that are going to be necessary to make all this work? And are we as a country and industry close to solving these? Again, a wonderful question. Let me make it perfectly clear. We're not getting, we being Ferrovial, any aircraft certified, but we're working hand in glove with the operators as well as the FAA in terms of certification of vertiport standards and that sort of stuff. To be clear, the FAA, the EASA, the CAA are, are burning the midnight oil, working very collaboratively um, to ensure that when they certify the first EVITOL, it's going to live up to the same standards, the same requirements, the same safety uh, requirements of any major commercial aircraft that they would they would certify out there. So it, it's important to understand that this isn't going to be something that is just going to go flying through, uh, excuse the pun, in terms of certification. They are trying to figure out, given that the aircraft is, you know, operates different than taking off from a runway, what kind of different certification procedures they're going to go through. But again, as I kind of referred to, the FAA at least believes that, that barring unforeseen circumstances, a couple will come out in 24, 25 timeframe. IASA has already issued a bunch of uh, vertiport regulations as well as, as working collaboratively with uh, a bunch of the carriers that are seeking certification. So uh, a long-winded answer to a very short question is, it's never easy getting an aircraft certified. It shouldn't be easy to get an aircraft certified, and it won't be easy to get an aircraft certified. But once that aircraft is certified, the traveling public will have the confidence that they're stepping into an aircraft that has gone through all of the rigors as you would of any other major jet flying from any other major airport. So, Kevin, I have a concern that the biggest value of this technology, even though I'm a big fan of it, will be in places that have the most physical constraints, like New York or L.A., for example. Is this concern misplaced, you think? Well, it depends upon what your concern is. I mean, I think the answer is it is very likely, as, as I just kind of described, that when you have kind of these urban difficult places to move in and around um, that it's very ripe for this new type of technology that can quickly and sustainably get you from point A to point B. But I don't think by any means that that's the only um, market or solution out there for EVITOL aircraft. I mean, there are plenty of other folks and we've had conversations with them where they live in remote uh, locations and you know, to cross rivers or mountains or whatever, uh, it's extremely difficult to get to via road. Um, but there are the ability to get from point A to point B quite quickly or to islands or to for medical. Uh, and, and so there, is, there are all sorts of other adaptable, um, we believe, markets out there. So I don't believe that, you know, New York, Los Angeles, Florida are going to be the only markets where these aircraft are going to be, be used by any means. That may be where they start, but over time, you know, as things scale and as opportunities and companies present themselves to to lever this this new technology, we think there are boundless other opportunities out there. I have another concern, Kevin, which is when you read about these, sometimes people are talking about pilots and sometimes they're talking autonomous and others. I guess my question is, do you think that this technology 
will sort of cut its teeth in the commercial and industrial space before it gets to passengers, or will it start right out with passengers? You know, from our perspective, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Uh, you know, we have conversations with OEMs that are focused primarily on moving packages. And there's a whole host of other folks that are primarily focused on moving passengers. Um, our initial foray into the market will be on the passenger side. And, you know, again, barring unforeseen circumstances, we anticipate having a, a network of eight or nine locations in Florida first and operating as early as, you know, 25 through those locations. So I, I think you will see an amalgamation of, of everybody kind of dipping their toe in the water and figuring it out. I do believe, though, Ben, that this is, um, you know, kind of a tipping point scenario, not dissimilar to the, the rail industry where, you know, you're building a national railroad system and, and lots of people were wary of it. But once you first put the, the spike in the ground and the rail there and you put the first uh, train station and people saw that the benefits of, of that new form of transportation, everybody wanted a, a, a rail station. And the reality of it is not everybody, you know, will get a rail station, but it will migrate to those places uh, where the communities understand and want it and, and get the benefits. And so I do believe, you know, from our perspective, once passengers start moving in and around Florida, there will be a tipping point where many others will see the benefit and will quickly want to follow suit. So let's keep on that subject kind of sort of. Um you talked about Florida. You talked about big cities like New York. You know, Florida in particular had a pretty rough summer with weather and air traffic control delays and the like. How is this technology going to be able to kind of fit in with typical air traffic control demands, drones that are now competing for airspace? Where is your piece of the action in the airspace game? Yeah, well, you are, you are spot on that airspace is something that has to be worked through. And again, to the credit of, of the regulatory agencies, they're tackling it, um, we believe, as they should be and, and trying to, you know, not pick winners and losers, but pick opportunities to integrate and how, whether it's a drone or whether it's an EVATOL or whether it's a, an aircraft, you know, landing into Miami, how do you accommodate and, and balance all the needs of the, of the various industry? It's not an easy uh, solution, but we believe it is a very workable solution. Evitals will start out with a pilot and they will start out under uh, VFR conditions. So it's no different than a little GA uh, aircraft taking off from a remote place. The difference is it won't be a remote place, but they will have visual. Ultimately, it will become IFR and ultimately or require all of the integrations you talk about. It also is very dependent, uh, as Ben was talking about earlier, on, on where you're flying from and to. And so one of the things that we, we look at when we're trying to site locations is to make sure that we can get underneath congested pieces of air traffic. Now, the last thing we want to do is to have to fly into or out of uh, restricted areas where it's heavily you know, dominated by large aircraft and that sort of stuff. So. It, it, it's part in citing the locations and finding those locations where you can get into cities and have the minimum amount of impact to the airspace. Uh, but ultimately, the FAA, EASA, and others uh, will, will have to continue to look at it globally and holistically to make sure that, that everything is integrated and not competing. Is it realistic, do you think, to get the cost of a trip comparable to today's Uber, either with or without surge charges? What would that take? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at all of the OEMs, their objective uh, and the operators is to, is to bring in transportation that is competitive with Uber. And ultimately, we believe that that absolutely is achievable. It's going to be like with any new industry, though, you're going to have to scale it. You're going to have to use economies of scale in terms of, of moving people. It also will be highly dependent upon, uh, you know, the, the, the business market. Um, so today you can get from, you know, using DFW in a black Uber from Plano to DFW, and it may cost you 80, 90, 
$100. We very much believe that that is achievable with, with EVATOLs. And on the longer hauls, you know, connecting cities like Fort Lauderdale to Miami or Miami to the Keys, no different than the airline industry when you spread your 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 cost and you spread your revenue over longer longer hauls it'll be much easier to achieve you know very competitive prices but it's not going to happen immediately and like i said it's going to take some scaling but if done right we absolutely believe that ultimately this can become you know a form of mass transportation i i've said before and it and it's not from my perspective that much of a reach in terms of a comparison you know i'm old enough that when cell phones came out, they were as large as bricks. They cost a lot of money and very few people have them. And as the technology evolved, as the distribution systems got around and as the, you know, just the, the consumers that wanted to use them and, and demanded that service, you know, cell phones are now ubiquitous. 12 year olds carry them. So I don't think it's that much of a reach when you're making this kind of step up in technology that over time, uh, this very much can be a cost-effective kind of mass form of transportation. But it won't start that way. It will start with higher fares, and over time, we believe, will will evolve downwards. Kevin, have you had a chance to ride in one of these prototype aircraft, or are there simulators? I have been in the simulators, and I have witnessed a couple of the two different vehicles in their test flights. And, you know, it's extraordinary. I, I, I can't overstate how cool this technology is and how I fundamentally believe it's going to, like I said, transform how we move. What is also unique, and you, 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 know, you saw it way back in the early days of flight, there are so many men and women focused on building these aircraft, creating these aircraft, trying to fly you know, like the Wright brothers did, that is, you know, it gets your hair standing up on the back of your neck when you see 20-year-old, 30-year-old folks truly taking battery technology and various different configurations to, to have these aircraft take off. It's, it's truly, truly exciting. And, and, and you know, a, a slide astray, this is an industry that I hope to be able to absolutely ride in and experience, but it's really for the you know, generations younger than mine that will see this form of transportation as, as a no-brainer. And, and quite honestly, we brought 24 young, bright minds from AECOM and Ferrovial together uh, last week uh, in a design challenge because we wanted the, the younger generation to have their, their thumbprint uh, on how we evolve and, and develop these, these vertiports. So, you know, I just feel privileged, given my age and given my experience, to uh, to be part of an industry that I truly think will fundamentally change how we how we move. Well, let's wrap up here and tell us, Kevin, how you define success in the next five and ten years regarding this exciting initiative. Sure, Ben. Um, you know, in the next five to ten years, we want to be building these these regional networks of aircraft that will be you know, like i said in in different business models whether they're moving packages whether they're moving people whether they're connecting remote areas it, developing that technology and utilizing that technology wherever there are opportunities i think the other thing that is also exciting about five and ten years from now is you know we're sitting with with the leaders in the industry and they have generation one, but generation two, generation three of these aircraft will be different. They'll be larger. Some of them will be uh, most likely autonomous and they will potentially have different forms of, of propulsion, uh, hydrogen is one. And so what's really exciting is, is you know, five or 10 years, I, I can see us traveling longer distances using electrical uh, propulsion and, and four, five, six-seater aircraft, but I also can see five or ten years down the road, autonomous aircraft uh, flying. You get in, you go, and it may be uh, utilizing a completely different form of, of uh, propulsion such as hydrogen. So, you know, I think the next five or ten years will open this industry, but it will also catapult it in terms of, of all the other kind of attributes and and 
generation two, generation three aircraft that we know are on the uh, on the drawing board with some of these these uh, companies. Well, Kevin, this has been fun. I think our listeners are going to love this. I look forward to seeing you and George Jetson over the skies of <laughs> Dallas uh, with myself sometime soon. But um, thanks for joining the Airlines Confidential. It's been a great conversation. Ben and Chris, it's been my sincere pleasure, and I wish you both the best. Well, thanks again, Kevin, and we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks to Kevin Cox for making us smarter about the EV tool outlook. Now it's time to get to some of our listener questions. Please keep your questions coming via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit us at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompt to submit your question or comment. Chris, our first question is from Ryan in Minneapolis, and he had a follow-up question to your pretty firm position about airline stock buybacks. Love the show, and I listen every week. I'm a road warrior on the Dayton to Minneapolis route and a platinum on Delta. We're in bad shape out here in the Midwest due to significant Delta capacity cuts, due to the labor shortage and other factors. On your 824-22 show, Chris mentioned that Delta is looking at doing another stock buyback, which would be infuriating to me. They did a bond buyback back in July. But what is your source that another stock back is coming? Or did I understand you wrong? And you were you referring to past buybacks? So, Ryan, thanks for the follow-up. The original question we answered back in August was asking about whether airlines might re-engage in stock buybacks after the moratorium expires on September 30th, 2022, about the time this show drops. Delta CEO Ed Bastian has said publicly that he is considering another buyback. And union leaders, not just at Delta, but at other airlines, have continued the drumbeat strongly opposing stock buybacks. And so I'm going to stand by my statement from August. I think it's a bad idea. I'm a free market guy, but the $50 billion in COVID relief the airlines got was not a free market thing. And I think a stock buyback in the context of inflationary pressure, pressure on labor costs, still relatively high fuel costs, and their other operational considerations is a knuckleheaded idea. But that's probably why I'm not an airline CEO. So we'll leave it there. Ben Jose from Canada writes, how much do interline agreements really cost airlines? With the new DOT dashboard, it shows Southwest will not rebook you on another airline during a cancellation because they don't interline. How much money does Southwest really save per year doing this? Great question, Jose. And I can't say how much Southwest saves from this, but I can say it's not only Southwest's decision. For an airline to interline, both airlines within the interline have to agree. When I was at Spirit, for example, we could not get another airline to interline with us until at one point we had a short-term deal with then Airtran Airways, who was kind of in the same spot we were. Nobody else would deal with them. So while we wanted to be able to interline, say, with an American in South Florida or with a Delta in Atlanta, American and Delta would have had to say, we'll do this with you, Spirit, and they didn't. So one possibility is that Southwest would be willing to interline and spend the money it would take to do that. There are certainly some technological things they have to do. There's certainly some agreements that have to be reached about how the money exchanged in terms of the people that got put on Southwest from their interline partner and the people Southwest sent to other airlines, whether it's a monthly or quarterly reconciliation, the management of that. In general, the airlines that do interline 
are already part of some sort of code share or other agreement, therefore probably have the technological infrastructure in place that makes it relatively easy for them to add this. Southwest case may be one of technology limitations, not that they couldn't get there, but since they haven't historically done a lot of code shares, that it may be more of a struggle for them. And it may be that other airlines just don't want to help Southwest that much. So it's a real interesting point that you make. But in the end, my intuition is that Southwest isn't avoiding this because they save a lot of money doing it. I don't think it would take them a lot of money to do that. My guess is there are other issues here. And then Ben, Raj from LA writes us, why do airline boarding passes usually show departure gate information, but not the departure terminal? I frequently find myself looking up which terminal a particular airline or flight is leaving from, especially when it's a code share. It could be printed or displayed on the boarding pass instead. Thanks for the response. That's a great idea, Raj. It's funny. I've never really noticed that before, but I'm sure you're right. And it would, you're right, be pretty easy to say gate 24, terminal C, or gate 25, terminal 3, or whatever. I think that would be easy to do. Airlines sometimes don't think of the most obvious things, but I like that idea a lot. And let's see if any airline picks up your idea, because I think it's a good one. They'll probably blame Sabre or something for why they can't do it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's probably right. (laughs) Well, with that, I want to give my shout out this week to Newark Airport, the one with all those cancellations or delays, because they're finally opening a brand new Terminal A. And it's really hard to get a new terminal or a big refresh of a terminal done anywhere in this country. But to get it done in New York seems like it takes four or five times harder. And Newark Airport, like its peers, LaGuardia and Kennedy, have all been in need of a lot of help at times. And Newark actually getting to the point where they can make this happen is going to be great for flyers who fly in and out of Newark Airport. So good job, Newark, for getting this done. I agree. Good job. And my shout out is both sad, but also with some happiness. This past week, Robert Giggy passed away. Mr. Giggy was the first airline passenger saved on an airplane after American Airlines was the first airline to install defibrillators on all their aircraft starting in 1997. The AED that saved Mr. Giggy was installed on his aircraft just two days before his flight to Mexico in 1998. He lived a happy and productive 24 more years after his onboard save. My thoughts are with his family and also kudos to Dr. Dave McKinnis, who was the American Airlines medical director who pioneered this program that is now a standard practice across the industry and that has saved hundreds of lives. Maybe even thousands of lives. That's a great one, Chris. Well, I hope everyone has a great week and we'll see you next week on Airlines Confidential. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.